the doctrine of eternal security. It'll be in a debate format between myself and Sean Adams. I'll take the affirmative side that once you're saved, you're always saved, and he will take the negative to that, uh, that you can walk away from the faith and lose your eternal security. So that would be the thesis. Stay tuned, and we'll get rolling with it. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God what the scriptures teach. I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them. And they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. Alright, so that is what we're talking about this afternoon. The eternal security of the believer, Sean Adams. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me, Josh. <clears throat> hey, so um, I'd like to, you and I actually, this is this is kind of the backdrop for what the reasoning behind starting this podcast in the first place was, was uh, just for interaction with people that I talk with online and to have an opportunity to do this thing in, um, in a format that we can, you know, go a little deeper than just 160 characters. And Sean and I kind of started out that way, I believe it. It was in a response to uh, one of the other videos that we've done in the past on, was it, it was the Bible version debate that we did. Yeah, the preservation, the King James only discussion. So, yeah, that's exactly how Sean and I got in touch, uh, which, by the way, if you're watching this video right now and you have something uh, that you'd like to respond to or you're interested in, you know, kind of moving along in the conversation, um, to possibly come on the show or something, reach out to me. You can reach me on Twitter at the real J Gibbs, T H A, real J Gibbs. Uh, you can reach me on Facebook at Joshua Gibbs. Um, what else? I, pretty much any social media platform, YouTube. Um, but also, I wanted to let you guys know that I obviously have changed the name of what this podcast is. It, it used to be Making the Hedge Apologetics, and uh, I really kind of started thinking about that, and I think that I like talking Christianity apologetics a little better. So that's what we're going to go with. That's what you'll be able to recognize um, this podcast moving forward um, is that name. But we're also, uh, just recently we started um, a, a new audio streaming service, which is putting us on every uh, audio streaming platform that you can think of for podcasting, uh, which is, is really cool. Uh, that means that we're also now uh, listener supported. So if you want to donate to this channel, if you think that this is something that's worth getting the word out, you can do that. Uh, you can either be a, a monthly donor, you can do a one-time donation, however you want to do it, you can do that. We're, we're set up and structured to be able to do that, um, which is obviously really appreciated to be able to, you know, pay for what we need to do to, to make this happen. But anyway, so that's what we are going to get into. Sean, I'd like to uh, before we actually start 
the discussion uh, on eternal security, let our audience get to know you a little bit. And uh, I, you and I spoke over the phone um, a few nights ago. We were testing all the, the technology and make sure the video service works. And originally we were probably going to go just about five or ten minutes, but we ended up talking for about 45 minutes, almost an hour. Um, and, and that's pretty easy to do. So why don't yeah, you... We, got it. we started to get into some good stuff there. We did, man. And I think that's kind of how the conversation is going to go today. Um, it just flows real nice. I've, I've got a pretty bad habit of um, jumping in and interjecting. Some people call it interrupting and, and you know, may consider that to be rude. So I'm going to work on that tonight, man. Just tell me, Josh, stop it. Now, go ahead. I mean, we've got to interact. So it's okay if you jump in, interrupt. We can always pick up where we left off. Sweet, man. I appreciate that. So anyways, thanks for coming on. Why don't you uh, tell everyone who's watching and listening later uh, or right now uh, a little bit about your story. Who are you um, and why is this such an important topic to you? Why is eternal security such, such an important topic to you? Well, um, I, I really, my story's pretty, pretty bland. Um, I came to the faith early in the 2000s. Uh, I mean, initially I was met with the King James Onlyist that was a co-worker. Um, he automatically said I wasn't saved from reading from the NIV and, and it pushed me into the, to the Bible history discussion and learning about how the Bible came to be, uh, the different versions of the Bible, the different text families and, and, and those kind of things. Um, I went to Church of God for a couple of years uh, and taught adult Sunday school class for, for a little while. Um, I really enjoyed that, but I found myself struggling with the traditions of denominations. Um, the struggle between, you know, doing things that aren't necessarily laid out in the Bible. So I, I, I had to step back from some of that. I agree with probably most of everything that Church of God, you know, adheres to, but there's a few points that that were sticking points for me. But um, and I found that pretty much to, to be the case with for everywhere I go. Um, Southern Baptist. Well, this discussion here is going to cover probably why I can't go to Southern Baptist Church or the Independent Fundamental Church, even though I would probably agree with them on 95 percent of the things that they say. Um, but that's, I mean, that's to be expected. So it, it's okay. I mean, I, I just go with it. I talk to who I can, I interact with who I can. Um, I spend a lot of time discussing on YouTube. It, it's a bigger format than Twitter or, um, I have more interaction there than I do on Facebook or anything like that, but it is hard to get across what you want to say, uh, in, in a written form it's a whole lot better to do it this way so and this is my first this is my first venture into this so uh, i'm going to try to present my case the best i can i, I can do it pretty good on, through the top format but this, this is a little bit different for me well i'm looking forward to it so yeah thanks again for coming on man uh, you and i really did have a good conversation um in the written format as well as um when we when we spoke over the phone and then when we did the live stream kind of test so i'm looking forward to it for those of you who are watching, this is kind of what it's going to look like, uh, the itinerary. We're both going to have somewhere between 7 to 10 minutes um, for our introduction and kind of lay out our position. Um, 
you can you you're probably going to hear some specific texts message uh, uh, mentioned, but the focus of the introduction isn't going to be to nail down one specific text and go, this is what we're talking about tonight. Uh, it's just going to be to lay out your position why you do or do not believe uh, in the eternal security of the believer. Um, so I, I'll go first since I'm taking the positive, and then Sean will go second. I'll put a timer up for those of you who are viewing live so you can kind of keep track with us. Um, should be between 7 and 10 minutes, so I'll put the 10-minute timer up there uh, for the max amount of time. Uh, so you can keep track of that. But after we go through the introduction, that's when we're really going to kind of get into what the specific text side uh, is going to be discussed. So we're actually going to dialogue on Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, Romans 8, 1, and uh, some of the other key passages, Romans 5, uh, Galatians 5, uh, 2 Peter 2, and, if, and maybe we'll see how far we get. But before we before I get into my opening statement, I wanted, I wanted to let you all know that I did do kind of get a feel for what the waters were in the social uh, the social media circles that I hang out in, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube. But uh, I did a few polls in Twitter. I did a few polls in on Facebook, and then a few different groups on Facebook. And on Twitter, I did two polls. One of them came in with 51 votes. 95% supported the eternal security view. So 95% of people believe in my circle that you cannot lose your salvation. Um, the other poll uh, was somewhere uh, around the same. It was above 90%. Uh, but then the Facebook poll that I did, there were 64 votes um, total. Uh, as of last night, I didn't check it right before this. There's probably more now. But there were 55 out of 64 that said yes, 8 that said no, and there was one that said, I don't know if you can lose your salvation. On Soteriology 101, they did a poll, and uh, it, I, didn't, I didn't add up all the totals. Uh, they had a few different categories, but uh, if, you were to, if you were to really break down each one of those categories, it was pretty much 50-50. So it, I, th I think that um, kind of gives you a feel for, um, one, <laughs> the people that I usually interact with are mostly believe the same way I do. Uh, but in, when, you, when you get a, a little broader category of uh, a group setting of people who are really going to be interacting with opposing viewpoints like Soteri Soteriology 101, that group, um, it's, it's a split decision there. And there's going to be a lot more votes, too. So, uh, Sean, did you have anything you wanted to add on that? No, I, I, I think that does. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. It really doesn't surprise me. I, I mean, we, we're in the South. Uh, Southern Baptist Convention is is a big chunk of the people down here, so I, I would expect everybody that would toe that line would vote. You know, yeah, you can't lose it. That's that's not too surprising. I, but I mean, Layton Flowers, his his, um, his voting sounds uh, to me that sounds more fishy than um, than what yours come up with. But I wouldn't think it would be ninety percent. That's yeah. I don't think I'm in that big of the minority. Layton <laughs> yeah. didn't actually put that poll out. I think it was Braxton Hunter who put that out oh, there, okay. or uh, Pritchett. I can't remember his it, first name. It was just on his on his website. Well, he did it in the Soteriology 101 group, but he's the one who actually put the poll out there. Okay. So, so anyways, that thought that might be a little bit interesting. I'm going to go ahead and start with uh, my opening. Let me get the timer up here for you all. Hey. Hey, hey, Josh, am I supposed to be seeing you? Because I only see your icon. 
You only see my icon. Yes. Um, yeah, you should be able to see me. Let, let me check that right now. Yeah, that could be. Can you see me now? Yeah, I can see you now. Okay. Sweet. Good to go. Let me put this timer up here for you all viewing at home. All right, we're going to go ahead and get rolling. Okay. Should be able to see it right in the middle. So, okay, so the first thing that I want to start out with when we're talking about the eternal security of the believer is uh, to really break down um, where that falls in, in, in line with the categories of salvation. So I would say that the overall subject of salvation, it, salvation itself, um, is going to be the heading for what this topic is. And underneath that, you've got subcategories. So the category of salvation, the subcategories would fall underneath that. One of the main subcategories, sub the very first subcategory of salvation, would be justification. And uh, underneath justification, that's where I would put the subcategory that we're talking about today, which is the eternal security of the believer. So the focus of my introduction and my position is not going to be focusing on the doctrine of justification, though I believe the doctrine of justification is the key to understanding the eternal security of the believer. My job is to focus on that subcategory itself tonight and uh, really just talk about why I believe you cannot lose your salvation. In Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 20, uh, Paul says it this way, and he sums up why he believes and how important um, the eternal security of the believer is to him. And obviously that's going to have a little nuance to it, but this is what he says. He says, in having... Uh, made peace through the blood of his cross him by him to reconcile all things to himself by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven so the first thing right off the bat is Paul explaining um, what what the atonement was of Jesus Christ and what actually happened so it's it's a ministry of reconciliation right from the beginning Paul he's absolutely amazed at the idea of what Christ actually did what he actually accomplished within salvation it's, it's very, very personal to Paul, and, and it's very, very personal to me. And I think that it's very, very personal to whoever is watching this live stream um, or listening to the audio on this. You've probably got a pretty strong stance on whether you are for or against the eternal security of the believer. But let me say this. Paul, Paul didn't know whether or not any individual was saved just by looking at them. In fact, he didn't even try to do that. He didn't try to look at someone and say, you know what, this dude is saved. I'm looking at, at this, and this obviously is, is a clear-cut sign this guy is saved. Um, we've got good indication factors that you can look at and say this guy is probably saved, this guy probably is not saved, um, such as Matthew 7, James 2, John 15, etc. Um, but it's really not the job description of any Christian to say this person is or this person is not saved. So let me say right from the start, guys, I'm, when I lay out my position, I'm not saying, you know what, if you don't believe this, you're not saved. So um, try to get that out of your head right from the beginning. I'm not saying you're not saved if you don't believe 
the same way I do about eternal security, although it is very important and personal to me. There basically are six views on the eternal security of the believer. All right, for the Calvinist, um, it's a problem for me. I'm not a Calvinist. I believe that uh, eternal security is a problem for Calvinism simply because they don't have any assurance. They don't have any assurance because they don't base that belief on the promises of eternal life, but they base the belief on eternal security, on the uh, perseverance and the preservation of the saints. The reason they don't have assurance is because they also have no confirmation that you are one of the elect, except through one's inward reflection of outward works and behavior through perseverance. The subcategory of apostasy is absolutely always a part of Calvinism's belief that God could deceptively let you believe you were saved when in fact you never were. Therefore, apostasy itself is impossible within Calvinism due to their belief in the perseverance of the saints. So if you were once saved, you're always saved within Calvinism, but you can never know that you're absolutely saved because you don't know you're one of the elect. So what do we do? We look at your works to see if you actually, if your works line up to what we think uh, they should look like. Essentially, that creates the same problem for category number two, which is the Arminian. The Arminian believes you can lose, slash walk away, slash apostatize, slash backslide, or even leave Jesus. And this is a strange to me, considering that Jacob Arminius, he actually never taught this. Uh, but both Arminianism and Calvinism, they're both two sides to the same coin, if you ask me. Uh, eternal life to the Arminian is eternal, but it's only as eternal as it's applied to the believer. What that means is, as soon as you stop believing, you're toast. The third option. This is the option that shows that works for salvation in addition to or in replacement of the gospel itself uh, contributes to salvation. This could be baptism, it could be other world religions, could be uh, some of the things that other cults would teach, or it just could simply be, hey, you know what, uh, I'm going to be put on a scale one day, God's going to weigh my good works against my bad works, and at the judgment, if the good works weigh out, uh, then that means I'm going to get to heaven. If the bad works weigh out, that means I'm not going to get to heaven. Um, but essentially, it's not faith alone. And that old saying that faith is never alone and therefore faith alone will never save is ap applicable to this third option here regarding works. As soon as works are equal with faith within the role of salvation, that to me shows that we've got a real problem. Uh, the position of my opponent, uh, which he holds tonight and, and will have a chance to correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that his position is consistent with this view here. It shows that something is added to the doctrine of justification by faith alone when you add good works in order to keep, focus on that, in order to keep the good graces of a God who's looking at your works to keep your salvation as opposed to God looking at your works as a basis for rewards. So I believe that uh, the big, the big um, argument between the two of us is going to be tonight, um, when you see a Christian losing something, he's going to take the position that it's going to be your salvation I'm going to take the position that it's not your salvation, but it's your rewards and your inheritance. Um, so that's going to be the big factor between us tonight, I think. And maybe it won't be, but we'll see. The fourth, this is uh, really a, a, a view that's been dismissed by the majority of Christianity throughout history. Uh, this would be hyperdispensationalism, which teaches that there are different gospels and different dispensations, which uh, sometimes requires works for salvation, sometimes it doesn't, while at other times it requires works for Jews and no works for Gentiles, and sometimes it requires both works and faith, while at other times it's faith, at other times it's works. 
So it really just depends on how they personally would divide it and, and uh, decide whether or not it's works and faith or not works. And it just gets confusing. And at the end of the day, it's been rejected by Christianity throughout history. The fifth view, this would be a view that Michael Heiser kind of uh, views um, or holds to. He says that you do have eternal security only as long as you believe. And you don't have eternal security only as long as you don't believe. As long as you believe, you have eternal security. This seems to me to be incoherent. If it's eternal, it's not conditional. So essentially he takes the position that he, eternal security of the believer is conditional upon your belief. You, if As soon as you give up your belief, uh, you give up your eternal security. He also says it doesn't support Calvinism or Arminianism, uh, but you can decide. Uh, he also says you can simply stop believing, therefore you forfeit your eternal life, and goes on to say uh, that when he talks about it being impossible to lose your uh, eternal life, it, it doesn't mean impossible, it just simply means um, completely, it, it doesn't mean completely unable to, it just simply means uh, it's very difficult to do that. So the sixth view, this is going to be my own. Um, obviously, for those of you who are watching and listening to the sixth view and, and me claiming it as my view, this is going to be the biblical view. So I'm going to label it, this is the biblical view. Uh, I'm calling it the doctrine of security. So you've, you've got the subcategory um, under salvation and justification. Not only do you have assurance, but this would be separate from security. Once you have assurance, you uh, um, but once you've been born again, nothing will ever change that. Even if you apostatize, backslide, sin, leave the faith, or turn on Jesus. Simply because, well, I think that you'll see. I've got about one minute left. Um, I think here's some doctrinal conceptual categories which do support this subcategory of eternal security. That would be the new birth. The new birth says uh, you've been born again. You, just as much as you've been born again the second time, uh, you cannot be unborn a second time just as much as you've been born physically one time. You, can't unno you cannot undo your physical birth. You cannot undo your spiritual birth. You're a new creature. You've got a new nature. You have uh, the doctrine of imputation, justification, sanctification, glorification. You have the atonement itself pictured through the Old Testament, uh, knowing for a fact that Jesus died for you. You've got the earnest of the Spirit. You've got the adoption of sons. You've got regeneration, the work of the high priest, the concept. You've got the concept of behavior contributing to salvation, the body of Christ that shows that you're a member of, God, of Christ's body and that he cannot de deny himself. You have the finished work of Christ. You have the concept of lo losing an inheritance versus salvation, the concept of standing versus state. You've got character studies like Moses, David, Abraham, all of these things. There's, there's a ton of different concepts, but at the end of the day, uh, the breakdown between myself and Sean is going to come down to this. When you're tried by fire, is, it, is the works of, you, of the Christian tried by fire to determine whether or not one is saved or whether or not one is uh, losing or, get, or keeping their inheritance? I take the position it's your inheritance, not your salvation. So... With that said, Sean, I'm going to turn that over to you for your opening statement and give me a chance to get 10 minutes up on the board. Okay. And whenever you're ready, have at it. Um, that's a pretty good introduction, man. That, um, I do want to say up front, though, that I don't believe in losing it. I don't believe you lose your salvation. I just think that you never make it to the end of your faith to get it. Um, you become disqualified. Um, 
you shipwreck your faith, whatever term in, from the scripture you want to use. I, I, so I think it's an ongoing process where somebody begins down the path, the straight and narrow, and then it you can take a left and you can take a right and deviate off of that path. Um, the way Paul describes it is running a race and no, no one runs the race to finish second or third. You run to win the prize at the end to finish the race. Um, so my analogy would be that they, they don't finish the race for whatever reason. Uh, they become disqualified and, and do not uh, finish the course, keep the faith uh, and those things. But um, I've got uh, a page of stuff to read and it's a little wordy and, and like I said my, my introduction into this is um, more written so I'm just going to read this for now and, and then we'll see where it goes um, eternal security is the doctrine that salvation cannot be lost because it is kept secure by Christ since, it, since it's not gained by anything we do it cannot be lost by anything we do as with most everything else, eternal security exists on a spectrum. On the conservative side, we have those who accept this definition, but balance it with the need for confession, repentance, and holiness. On the liberal side, we have those who accept this definition, but take the position that even if one were to go to the point of unbelief, they're still saved. For example, Charles Stanley says, even if a believer for all practical purposes becomes an unbeliever, his salvation is not in jeopardy because believers who lose or abandon their faith will retain their salvation. Typically, this is called, today, this is called free grace theology. Um, but historically, it's called antinomianism or Gnosticism, which is the practice of living without regard to the righteousness of God, using God's grace as a license to sin and trusting grace to cleanse us of that sin. In other words, since grace is infinite, we're saved by grace, then we can sin all we want and still be saved. While there are surely many different nuanced positions between these two bookends, I hold to the position that all of them, to their consistent and logical conclusion, ends in antinomianism. The reason those in between may not accept uh, this is due to an inconsistent, arbitrary line in the sand where they pick and choose who's saved and who's not. In my view, this dualistic division of the body and the spirit brings me kind of to my first objection. From the historical perspective, this belief was held by the Gnostics of the early church. The heretical group described this dualism as a gold ring representing the spirit and a ring of filth representing the body. This ring of filth encased the ring of gold, but could never affect its purity. It seems those coming from the eternal security perspective have adopted a form of this teaching, although in many cases I don't think they know the historical connections. My second objection is the spiritual one. Based on this idea, com completely denying the new birth, the new man, severely limiting the ability of the Holy Spirit. On one hand, they accept the fact that the Holy Spirit can and will do everything, with the major exception that he's not able to keep us from sinning, and is evidently powerless to do so. So my approach to the question of eternal security is simple. Um, I ask questions, and, and as simple as it gets down to, um, what do the scriptures say? What, what questions can we glean from the scriptures? So is it 
possible according to scripture what does it say can a christian fall from grace galatians 5 can can we be condemned or fall under the same condemnation as the devil romans 8 1 timothy 3 can we believe in vain first corinthians 15 can we shipwreck our faith first timothy 1 can we depart from the faith first timothy 4 can we commit the sin of apostasy hebrews 6 2 Thessalonians, uh, can we quench the spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5, can we be cut off from the vine or the olive tree, Romans 11, John 15, is there a sin that will be not be forgiven in this age or the age to come, Matthew 12, for eternal security to be cr true, this would seem that the answer to all these questions has to be no, however, it seems the liberal view would say, yes, you can, you can do all of these things, because ultimately it doesn't matter. The whole discussion hinges on these answers to these questions, and I believe as we discuss some of these questions specifically, we'll see the warnings clearly conveyed within the scriptures. This leads us to one another question. Would the Bible warn us of impossible scenarios that we could never face? If so, these warnings would ultimately become illogical, incoherent, and meaningless. And I, for one, don't believe anything among the pages of scripture are relegated to being wasted words on the page. How much time do I have left? You've got four minutes left. You can use as much of that or as little as you want. Doesn't matter okay. to me. I'll, I'll, um, you brought up some of the points about the sixth view of once saved, always saved. Yes. I, from what you saw, I book in one one conservative side versus one liberal side, and and I agree with you. There's there's several in between there. Uh, my issue really is not with the the conservative side. Anybody that understands the concept of confession and repentance, First John type of thing, uh, I, I really don't, at the end of the day, if you still believe that you can't lose it, but you understand when you sin, you've got to confess and repent. Um, I, to me, I think you're, you're just doing what should be done scripturally, and if you want to hold it, I can't lose it. Uh, you know, we can discuss that, but my issue is probably more on the liberal side of the, which I, from what it sounds like you said, that you, you agree with that, um, even if somebody would apostatize uh, or become an unbeliever, an atheist or whatever, they, they would still be um, granted entrance into the kingdom. Yeah, I actually, so that would be my position. I do believe that uh... Uh, once you're saved, you're always saved, not with any condition attached to it at all. Right. Um, I think that as we go along further tonight uh, or this afternoon in that conversation when we break down some of the, the text, um, that you'll see why. Uh, and, and for me, I'm going to bring up the arguments that actually persuaded me to take this position. And if you're kind of uh, on the fence about this, uh, where I was years ago, man, it, it, it might be helpful to you. Um, but... So in the general category of things, uh, before we get into the specific um, uh, verses that we're going to look at, Hebrews 6 will be the first one, then I think we were going to go to Romans 8 after that. Yeah, um, I would just ask you, this is, this is something obviously you would have heard before. Everyone asks it, but I want to ask you, if, if you believe that you can depart from the faith, you, you were absolutely 100% saved, born again, justified, all, all those things, you're definitely a Christian. 
at some point you do apostatize. Like, so for instance, you've got the example of Josh Harris. Josh Harris, everybody, you know, super involved in, in mainstream Christianity, even wrote the, the Rules of Purity, and eventually retracted that, and just in the last few weeks has, uh, has made very public that he's walked away from the faith. So just as an example here, I, w I would say, you know what, if Josh Harris, my position, if Josh Harris actually truly was born again, walks away from the faith, says he doesn't want anything to do with it, my position is, if you're the body of Christ and, and you're, you're a member, you are, uh, you've been born again, you're a new creature, and um, you are part of Christ's body, my, my take is, what did Jesus say? I mean, Jesus, Jesus says that he can't deny himself. So if you're part of his body, if you're a new creature, that's my position. But what would your take be on that uh, when it comes to the argument of contributing to your salvation? If you, you believe that you don't contribute to uh, the initial point of your salvation, but you do believe that you can contribute to losing it. Well, um, on the Josh Harris thing, my only issue where I interact with people on, on YouTube and in video is that, that are talking about him, um, I'll never, ever say that a person was never saved. I'll never say that they, their confession wasn't a true one. I don't believe that anybody can think, can call Jesus Lord other than through him by the Spirit. Um, so I take the general position that if someone says, I believe in Jesus, I, he's my Lord and Savior, and, you know, I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection, I take them at their word. And, and what they do from that point on in their life is a reflection of that. And if they don't bear fruit, if they don't grow in, in faith, um, if they don't continue in the faith, then um, just like Paul said in, in Romans that they'll be cut off if they don't continue in his goodness. Okay, so um, I, I think to, to narrow that down a little more, I would say um, the, the question that I would really have on that, that subject is, you, do you believe that you contribute, one, one, do you believe in, that you contribute anything to salvation in order to be saved? That's a two-part question. I, I don't take the Calvinist view of regeneration prior to faith. So okay. I believe it's a free will. It's a free will choice to. It's something that we do, and we accept. We choose to believe. Choose this day who you're going to follow. Yeah, but do you it's believe that choice. you actually contribute to your salvation in the sense of earning it by your works at all? Prior, after, after belief, I believe not in. It's not us. It's it's the works wrought through and by the Spirit. If we yield to the Spirit and we do the things of the Spirit, we will yield good fruit. So I, I understand that, but I'm trying to draw a distinction between between uh, belief and works, so faith and works. Um, do you believe that you have to have good works in order to be saved as, as, as a part of your salvation? Is, is that... You see what I'm saying? Does does your works in if, any if way those, apart, those, does that contribute to your salvation? And obvi obviously, does it contribute to you losing your salvation? I think it contributes to your enduring and believing. 
the, the continued word of believing or believes. If we say believe in the present tense is we're the person believes. And today we believe. Tomorrow we believe. And and that is a continuing today we endure. Tomorrow we endure. Enduring and believing. Those are the continuing criteria. And what happens from that growing and enduring and believing and growing are the works of the of the spirit, which are not um, of anything other than love, peace, joy. The things that Peter talks about, the pain, the things that Paul talks about, the, those things are what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about, um, you know, not eating shellfish or anything like that. I, I, not the works of the law. And I, I think the distinction between is the works of the spirit versus the works of the law. I think we get hung up on the works of the law side of it. When, when Paul's talking about the works, he's talking about the works of the law. Because in Galatians 5, he talks about the works of the Spirit. And, and that's, it's the big distinction that has to be made between these two positions. Um, no, I, I don't, I reject the works of the law. I, I don't, I don't follow that at all. Okay. I think, I think Paul was right. I mean, I, of course, he says the works of the law are, are what they are, right? I mean, it's not a... Uh, I'm hoping I'm explaining this sufficiently. Yeah, I think that we'll be able to break it down even more. Um, to give to give my one answer on that, I don't believe that works contributes to salvation at all. Zero percent has nothing to do with your salvation. It's completely separate. It's completely separate from justification. I think that once you've been justif justified, your works is a part of sanctification, uh, not to keep you saved, but uh, but to show that you are saved, to grow in your faith, to mature, to grow unto f perfection. So I think that uh, your works doesn't contribute to salvation. What it contributes to is your inheritance. So uh, what I mean by that is if, if I could contribute to my salvation, I would not be able to contribute to salvation at all because my works are still a filthy rag. And uh, that's all they are before the sight of God. That's, they're just they're, they're dirty. They'll never be clean in, in, in Robert, the sight I, of God. That, and I think that you would agree with that. Um, but I, when I'm talking I dis about... I, I disagree with that. I, I disagree with works being filthy rags oh, okay um for the simple fact that if the works that are wrought through me are through and by the spirit uh you're, you're calling the spirit filthy rags okay so what i'm 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 associating good works apart from the spirit anything that you're doing on your own so obviously if the spirit mm -hmm. is involved with what you're doing what what you're working out and then it's of the spirit, right? So there'll right. be a difference. But, but the there. typical the typical position that usually I come across is even people today who are Christians say their works are filthy rags. They never transition to saying their works uh, through and by the spirit yeah. are are righteous. Well, I would agree with you on that. I, I think yeah. that you've got to see yourself uh, in a new light of who you are in Christ. Uh, versus right. who you were, I think that's a, a big identity problem that we need, that we have, especially especially when it comes to keeping your salvation. So I would even say that anything that you're doing of your own, uh, your own heart, your own agenda, your own con contribution to earn salvation, even after you're saved, if that's if that's the criteria for keeping your salvation, you're going to lose it. Um, because if 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 you ever did anything to to earn it, um, you know, then 
if you have it one second, you could lose it the next. I mean, that's why I, I, I say that uh, justification is the overarching um, category for what we're talking about here because um, it's all in the finished work of what Christ did for us. What did he actually go, set out to do? What did he do? And uh, how does that affect us as believers in his work? So um, I think that we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 6 first. Yeah. And then... Uh, can, I, can I comment one thing on, on that? Yeah, have the that finished work. I, I don't deny the finished work of, cro- of the cross that Christ completed. The problem is, is, is that all that there is to it? Is that it? For example... We know that he's now intercessing for us right now. So if, if the finished work was finished, why is he intercessing? Um, our, yeah, so I think that we can get into that. Uh, okay. The short answer would be you can look at, you can. I would specifically use Peter as an example. Uh, Christ made intercession for Peter, and uh, yet he knew and, and told Peter that before the cock crows, he's going to deny him three times, which he did. So does that mean that Peter apostatized and, and lost his salvation? Uh, if he did, and that's what actually happened, I think it creates a real problem for your position when you get to Hebrews 6 and 10 and 4, specifically where it says that you cannot be brought to repentance again. So if it is a, a matter of salvation and not a matter of inheritance, then Peter is not going to be in heaven when we get there uh, based off of your position. Right. Um, uh, well, I think I think my to clarify the position of Peter and, and and the other apostles, I don't. I would question their situation as far as um, their salvation. But I have no problem with this because I believe salvation is something that comes at the end of your faith and something that you have to continue to work out. I, I would question their all of their positions prior to the death, burial, and resurrection, and the sending of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, Let's get into Hebrews 6. I'm going to read it here. Uh, 6 verses 1 through... Let's see. Let's do 1 through 9. Okay. I'm going to read it, and uh, then I'll give my position, then we'll get Sean's position, and uh, then we'll dialogue on it. It says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of the laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. If they shall fall away, to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that come uh, comes often upon it, and brings forth herbs meet for them, uh, by whom it is dressed, receives blessing from God. But that which bears thorns and briars is rejected, and is near to cursing, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak, for God is not unrighteous to uh, forget your work and labor of love which you have showed toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So um, my position on Hebrews 6, I want to lay this out. It should be just be a few points, four, five, six points for me. The sure. first is 
the rule of interpretation. So I believe that when you're interpreting the Bible, you have to take it as an overarching view that the Bible does not contradict itself. So when you see verses that teach very, very clearly uh, the doctrine of not only eternal security, but assurance and justification and uh, the promise of everlasting life to those who believe, uh, not addressing um, any subcategories of unbelief or apostasy or, or backing away, all of that. You've got passages like 1 John 5, 12 and 13, Ephesians 1, 13, John chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Romans 8, 39, and so on and so on. You can keep going. There's just endless amount of verses that very, very clearly teach everlasting and eternal life that can never be lost. Uh, I think John 6 and John 10 and 17 are probably the strongest uh, for that, along with uh, Romans 8 um, at the end of chapter 8, where uh, one, it starts with Jesus Christ talking about those who have been given to him and no one can pluck him out of his hand. And it, and it ends with, in Romans 8, uh, the fact that no one can take you out of his hand. So once you've been given to Christ, not only are you a new creature, but you are uh, part of his body and he cannot deny himself. So I think that if you're going to take the position that you can lose your salvation but not contribute to your salvation, you're contradicting portions of the scripture, which means uh, you would have to eisegete any particular one passage to make it say something that the rest of scripture does not. Now, to sum that up, what I would say is, um, ultimately, you've got a consistent teaching throughout scripture uh, that you don't contribute to your salvation, no one ever has contributed to their salvation, and no one ever will contribute to their salvation. If you are, not only are you not going to make it to heaven, uh, but the fire that your works are burned in are going to be a different fire than the works that the Christian is burned in. Uh, when your works are tried uh, at the great white throne judgment, it's going to be a works uh, being burned on whether or not you have earned your way into heaven. For a Christian, that's not the case. Christ is already... Uh, suffered the agony and the punishment for our sin um, and, and actually took that upon himself. So the Christian, when it speaks of us going through the fire, it would be a reference to our rewards and our inheritance, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So th there's a difference there. When you see a Christian being burned versus a non-Christian being burned, uh, you have to ask the question, well, what happens? Is it is it dealing with salvation or inheritance? So clearly I take the position it's your inheritance and not your salvation. Now, the second point is the first century historic perspective of the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant and the better things to come in the promises of God. Uh, I, I think that that's the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews is to write to first century Hebrew people um, what they have in Jesus Christ as a fulfillment of what they had before Jesus Christ. And uh, no, that's not speaking to the, the eternal... Um, existence and pre-existence of Christ that's just simply speaking of of the old covenant and the new covenant and what was pictured in the old and what is now apparent in the new that means that Christ has become uh, the one and final offering for your salvation as opposed to the daily offering uh, in the Old Testament so where the old covenant was good the new covenant is better and um, I think that's something to really consider um, what a first century Hebrew hearing this message for the first time is actually considering. Um, you've got to take into consideration as well that the first century Hebrew uh, and Jews who were actually converting to Christianity, including Pharisees, including scribes, including um, just so many different Jewish believers, were actually um, coming across people like the Judaizers and people with the same 
the pe- people with the same conviction as what Paul had before he converted. They looked at it as as not apostasy, but they looked at it as as a false religion that um, had a punishment of of death. So. Really, whoever the writer is here in Hebrews, whether it's Paul, whether it's Luke, whether it's Luke writing for Paul, it doesn't it, it doesn't make any difference who's writing it. What matters is the people who are hearing it are having to make a decision in the first century whether or not they return to Judaism to preserve their life uh, physically. So uh, with that, the context of Hebrews chapter 6 shows us right off the bat in verse 1. I, I want to uh, look at that. It says... In Hebrews 6, 1, um, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. That perfection there is going to be dealing with maturity of the believer. It shows not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. So now you're, he's, he's still doing the comparison of the Old Testament versus the New. And um, he says this you're going to do if God permit. Now, he's obviously speaking of saved people. We know that because verse 4 says it's impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, blah, blah, blah. It, we're going to focus on verse 6 there because that's the key. But let me, let me tell you, for those of you who may be a Calvinist and you're listening to this, this is something that you're really going to have a problem with because every Calvinist that I know um, says that these people are not Christians. They never were Christians. They were never regenerated or born again. Um, but my question to you who, who actually take that position would be to really consider uh, whether or not that's con- consistent and that is a consistent teaching with the systematic who shows that you cannot taste of the good works of the word. You cannot be a partaker of the Holy Ghost. You cannot be enlightened uh, without first being regenerated. So um, I, I think that that's something I would definitely love to hear a Calvinist actually admit and give a, a good answer to on why this is or is not a Christian. Um, but I would here's my position. If they fall away to renew them again to repentance, that's the key of the whole conversation that we are having. Uh, verse 9, it says plainly that we're discussing the things that accompany salvation. It says, it, it says, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. So I think if you look at the context, one of the first century, if you look at the context of what verse 9 is telling you, it's not telling you this is whether or not you can fall away from salvation itself. It's talking about what accompanies salvation. So the position that I hold to and I think is consistent with this specific chapter is your inheritance and your rewards accompany salvation. They are not salvation themselves. You can lose your rewards. You can lose your inheritance. Um, and, And this is the question that I would ask Sean, and I really want him to answer, and I'll do everything I can to get a good answer, um, is if you really believe that your works contribute to salvation, and at some point that you can lose your salvation or walk away from the faith, do you ever believe that you can come back to the faith? Do you ever believe that you can be uh, brought back into Christianity once you have departed? That would be a question that I've got for him. And uh, let let me wrap it up this way, and then I'll turn it over to Sean. I would say that um, kind of how a father and a son would be in an abusive relationship would be um, how you, as a son of God the Father, could be in an abusive relationship. Not in the sense that God the Father would ever abuse or hurt or mistreat you, but in the sense of how we treat God. 
Um, I think that this is absolutely 100% dealing with fellowship. Um, at some point, the most extreme of circumstances, God can break fellowship with us, and uh, we can become so hardened and, and made up in our own minds that we're right and God is wrong or the Word of God is wrong, uh, that there's a point where you, there's just no return there. Um, not, of, not of no return to your salvation, uh, but of a return in fellowship with God in the sense of walking with Him uh, in truth and just love and everything that you need to. Uh, not to keep your salvation, but to keep your reward. So Hebrews 10 ties into this. It actually ex explains the context of what we're talking about here, um, which is people in the first century who received the gospel but were now being counseled by false teachers not to stop practicing their temple rituals. So I think that's what we've got here. The Holy Spirit's rebuttaled for Gentiles. It's contained in Acts chapter 15. It's for Jews who had someone, probably Paul, write this letter to them. So again, it's not about salvation, it's about fellowship. And with that, Sean, I'm going to put the camera on you, give you a chance to lay out your position, and then we can talk about it. All right. I, I don't disagree with uh, too much there. I, I think it's two believers. We agree on that. Um, first early uh, church, we've got to take that into context. I think uh, you're right about it. Um, the the or the Jewish Christians that the Hebrews is speaking to um, is speaking to those. This is where we differ. I believe it's speaking to those who were being pressured to go back to Judaism, not just observance of the law, Acts 15 type stuff, uh, Galatians 1, 2 type stuff. I, I don't believe that to be the case. I believe it to be the case that these people are actually leaving the faith. So the way I would answer Hebrews 6, it's specific to apostasy. It's not specific. It, that's it. It's apostasy, not backsliding not doubt, not falling away in sin, um, and the the willing willingly sinning in, in Hebrews 10, it, I believe that's the same connection. I, they're both connected. Apostasy is the more, is the, what specifically Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, actually most of Hebrews is talking about, going back to Judaism. Um, this is the historical context. They they were they were being persecuted by men like Saul. Um, they were being uh, I, I, you can only imagine the pressure that these people were under to uh, renounce Christ and go back into Judaism, go back to the law. And and I believe that when it says if they fall away, the word if is is one of the most important words in Scripture. Because it creates a conditional statement, it's an if-then uh, scenario that plays out. If you do this, this will happen. If you don't do this, this will happen. So if granting that in the event that you fall away, uh, on the condition that you fall away, you cannot be renewed to repentance. Now, my connection to uh, the reason why it can't be forgiven is that it's connected to the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. Um, when a person who is born again, indwelled with the Spirit, leaves the faith and rejects the Spirit that's indwelled in them, um, they're, they're basically saying it's not of God. 
and they then if it's not it's not of God, then who's it by? So therefore, they're sinning against the Holy Ghost, the 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 third part of the Trinity, um, the one that leads you and guides you into all righteousness and truth. Um, you're denying that, and, and the Scripture plainly says that we cannot be forgiven of that, not in this age or in the age to come. We can sin against Jesus, we can sin against the Son, and we'll be forgiven. But a sin against the Holy Ghost will not be forgiven. My mic was off. Um, so, sweet man, uh, is there anything else that you wanted to add to that? Uh, I, let me let me comment. <clears throat> you mentioned First Corinthians three mm -hmm. a couple of times, and, and I want to I want to address it because I, I think I think the misconception in First Corinthians three. It, the part about um, he will suffer loss, but he he shall be saved. Yep. I I think. Let me let me go ahead and read it. Uh, go for ahead. Those who, go ahead. Yeah, just for those of you who are listening, I'm going to read it so you can follow along. That way, uh, most of the time when I'm listening to a podcast, I don't have my Bible in front of me. Although I may, uh, I, I'm able to pull up in my mind like, hey, this is this the section you're talking about in the Bible. But uh, let me just read it. It says. In 1 Corinthians 3, it says, For we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation, and another builds thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So there, go ahead, and I'll let you keep going with what you were talking about there. Okay. Okay. Uh, and to continue, verse 16, Know ye not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man defiles the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now, to me, this is the third way here. The first way is good works. Gold, silver, and precious stones. The second way is the haywood and stubble that's going to be burned. So you can do things that aren't sinful. That's that's haywood and stubble. If you go play golf on Sunday, it's not a sin. Or, or is God going to reward you for that? Is that can you think that'll be judged as gold, silver, and precious stones? No, the haywood and stubble it, it was fruitless, but it wasn't sinful. The third way is what is sinful. Verse 16, what you use, what you do that defiles the temple is sin. Jesus is the foundation that, that these, verse 12, 13, and 14 is talking about. Nobody's going to build sin on Jesus. That's not how it works. Sin is from within, within you. 
you're not going to build anything on Jesus. And that's this is this is I think this is the breakdown of, of the understanding on this verse. And verse 16 is the key to it. Most people stop at verse 15 and and I understand. But verse 16 brings it into light. Any man defiles the temple of God, God shall destroy. Okay, yeah, so my response to that would would obviously be the position that, yeah, we, we I stopped at verse 15 not because I didn't want to address the, the, the portion on your body being the temple. Uh, because I, I think that that's obviously... Um, that's obviously the point of the new covenant versus the old is is God doesn't dwell in temples uh, of 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 what man has has constructed and as he did in the Old Testament he now he now abides uh, within your temple which is your body so um, when we talk about the foundation that's laid for your salvation the cornerstone is going to be Jesus Christ and then the foundation stones around those cornerstones is going to be what the apostles uh, taught at the very beginning of what we would call the church age or Christianity. Um, so in that sense, when we talk about building upon that, and we see gold, silver, uh, and precious stones, those are things that only purify when they go through a fire. Those are only those, those things get better when they go through a fire. When you see wood, hay, and stubble, these are dead things. These are things that are already dead. Um, so, so some things purify, some things just absolutely burn up. Um, I think that there's absolutely a comparison of, of what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us through 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and things that when they go through the fire are absolutely going to be purified and, and be better. Um, those would, that would be the gold, silver, and precious stones. Uh, there's so much detail that you can, you can go through in talking about those three things, but and in, in along with the contrast of those three things um, it would be the things that burn. Those would be the temporary things, the things that don't last forever. So I think that you absolutely do have uh, a contribution to what is going to happen when you go through the fire, but it doesn't have anything to do with your salvation. Again, it has everything to do with your rewards and what happens in your body. So when we see the, the, that, um, the reference to that man being destroyed, it's not an everlasting destruction of going to hell. It's, it's a reference to the loss of the rewards because if you, ta if you go right back to verse 15, it says, If any man's work shall be burned, obviously we're talking about works, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So you're going to go through the fire one way or the other. I mean, you look at Daniel uh, back there, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego back there in the book of Daniel, and uh, those guys all went through the fire. That's a picture of what, what burns and what doesn't burn when you go through the fiery trial at the judgment seat of Christ. Um, yet you're going to be saved as by fire. The things that are going to burn are going to be the temporary um, dead things that you use to build on the foundation of Christ. You use the example of golfing. I don't, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's gold, silver, or precious stones unless you're golfing with somebody and witness. I mean, just something that you can do at the end of the day that's like, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, Hebrews 11, 6, um, there's nothing that you can do in this life if it's not done by faith that can please God. Um, so I think that's what it comes down to with your work, whatever it is that you're doing. It's not like we've got a, a, a set list of things that says, here's the do's and don'ts of Christianity, and here's how you make it, here's how you don't. I think it's this thing right here, whatever it is that you're doing. If you can have faith and trust God in what you're doing, that uh, it's going to bring him honor and glory. That's what he cares about. So that's how I would answer that. Right. And, and, and I think that's the typical understanding of, of 
the eternal security position. But but I, I, I still think, what does it mean to that God shall destroy? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The destruction of, of, of this, it says, if any man shall flesh. defile the temple of God, that'd be your body. We're still talking about your body. Him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So that's not that's it's not dis, this it's not saying. Here's what it doesn't say: If you sin after you get saved, God is going to send you to hell. That's not what it's saying. It it just told us right before that this man is going to be saved by fire, but there's his works are going to be burned. So I think that's where we've got to draw the 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 dividing line like here's where works and your salvation end and, and i think i think this gets to the point of that division between the spiritual and the physical that that eternal security people want to make that distinction they want to keep it separate like one don't interact with the other and what i'm saying is god we're all, all all of our bodies are going to die whether we're righteous or not so this verse seems completely illogical to say god's going to destroy your temple one day okay well yeah uh, we're all pointed to die okay. so to me it, it's just a spiritual aspect and, but i can see I, I see where you guys make the distinction and, and i just challenge you to look at this this disconnect between the body and the spirit they're one and the same and if the if this out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks right out of yep. your spirit your body acts so if your body is corrupt your spirit is corrupt this is the problem and and, and this is how i can look at romans 8 and all those other verses you mentioned those are all external factors. Sin is an internal factor. Out of your heart flows all manners of evil. And, and this distinction between external factors affecting us, nobody externally can pluck me out of God's hand. So nobody externally you can, can affect, whether it's famine, nakedness, or sword. Nobody affects my relationship with God. However, what comes out of me does. I hear you. Okay. does affect. Um, and connected with that, what when with what we were talking about in First Corinthians three, that was that was a part of what we were talking about in first in Hebrews chapter six. Right. You said no one can take you out of out of God's hand, but but you. Um, yes. So you believe that you can take yourself out of God's hand. So my my question is this. If you believe that you can take yourself out of God's hand, um, how does that relate to you contributing to keep yourself within God's hand? Because that would show me not enduring and believing. So that would, that would be make my, my faith would not be made whole. I would not be um, continuing in His goodness. I so would not be holding fast to the faith. So how is that related to sin in your own life? And do you sin now that you're saved? I, I can. I have the full potential. I do not believe that the perfect plan of, of Jesus, of God, laid out in the scriptures, the plan according to scripture, he said, I would that you sin not. It, 
it says to have this same mind that's in you being Christ that was in Christ Jesus being us to walk as Christ walked these are these are clear words in the scripture and if we don't do that we're not we're not walking after the spirit and, and I believe wholeheartedly that that is the perfect plan saying that we that there's not a perfect plan for us I believe when scripture was written that nobody was intended to sin everybody was intended to walk perfect and they had the ability to and it's nine times out of ten it comes from being immature in the faith and it goes back to Hebrews 6 the end of Hebrews chapter 5 the warning is a, to these immature Christians that aren't maturing in the faith they're not growing an immature plant does not bear fruit only a mature plant bears fruit and the urge is to go to maturity to for one to bear fruit two to secure yourself in the faith yeah so i i guess to to narrow that down even more i'm asking you sean do you sin i guess okay I, it's but it's not a foredrawn conclusion so my my question is how much do you have to sin to take yourself out of god's hand The more you sin, the harder your heart becomes, the colder your love grows. The further you get away to where you quench the spirit, you grieve the spirit. You cannot hear the call to repent. And that's when the problem becomes real. When you think you can do whatever you want to do and God, you know, God's not convicting me, so I must be right. You know how many times I hear that? I hear it all the time. If, if I'm wrong, God will convict me. If I'm wrong, you know, I'll just lose some rewards. I'll deal with it at, at the judgment seat. It's no big deal. I mean, these are massive issues, man. And and this is, this is what I'm passionate about. I, I want people to know there is something at stake. And, and I think it's, it's sad that we accept sin as a Ford God on conclusion to the Christian and that's the warnings are, are all over the place I mean you got two chapters in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 of you know repent and overcome otherwise something bad's going to happen to you so it's these if-then scenarios that, that you and I are talking about that when when we look at these if-then scenarios we have to ask ourselves if you continue Okay, what, conversely, what is the result of not continuing? See, if we say you'll receive a reward if you continue, and and I'm not quoting a specific verse, but you get the context of what I'm saying. If it's a truth claim, if you continue in the faith steadfast and not moved. Okay, what happens if you don't continue in the faith steadfast and not moved? What's the result of that? To me, if both parties receive eternal life, it's an arbitrary statement that don't even need to be made because it's meaningless. It means nothing to me, the believer, and who may be living right or not living right versus another person. We both end up in the same place. What's the purpose of Paul's wording? I think what I'm, what I'm trying to get a, a real clear answer to is for those, those people who are listening and, and hear you take the position that that uh, 
that you you're absolutely contributing to um to keeping your salvation through your word because i choose to walk after the spirit right but what i'm asking is what i'm asking is um at what what point like how much sin do you have and you're like at at what point does god say that one's small enough i'm not you didn't take yourself out of me yet but you do that 10 more times maybe a hundred that could do it but how much sin is there at what point do you decide like you know what this I, i just took myself out well, I, I just go to it specifically. One, I don't believe all sins are the same. And now that's probably ruffled some feathers, and maybe not with you, but people listening will probably say, what? I believe prior to salvation, prior to you believing, all sins are the same. They're all filthy rags. After you sin, there is a distinction. John talks about a sin that we shouldn't pray for. A sin that's not unto death. Um, it, there, there are these things that Paul lists in Galatians 5, the, the works of the flesh. He clearly says, if anybody does these things, I, I've warned you as I've warned you before, anybody who does these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I can't say, uh, if I murder, I'll be okay. If I can murder tomorrow, I'll be okay. I can murder next week, I'll be okay, because that's against the scripture. Can a man be forgiven? Yes, absolutely. I believe that without a doubt in my heart, because the scriptures are clear. Man can confess, be cleansed from his unrighteousness. And that's that, that's scripture, First John. It's, it's simple. It's Jesus taught us to pray, pray like this. Forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. We're, we're not only forgiven others, you know, when they transgress us, we're asking for forgiveness as often as we pray. So it, it's a continual, when I, when I use the words continuing, believing, ongoing, all that stuff is wrapped up in, and involved in that statement. Yeah. Um, so my, real quick, my response to that, um, just... Before, before we move on to okay. Romans 8, I think we need to move on to Romans 8. Um, I, I think that the importance that, that Paul or Luke or whoever is drawing here in, in Hebrews chapter 6 isn't to say, no, we're not saved so that we can sin. God forbid. I mean, Paul even writes about that. God forbid. Like, why would, I mean, grace is no more grace if, we're, if we accept grace so that we can sin. I mean, if you've got the wrong motive for getting saved... Uh, then yeah, you're definitely you didn't you didn't have a true conversion experience because you would understand like the depth and the depravity of the things that Christ went through for you that it becomes extremely personal. Right. Um, now I, I think that when we when we go to draw conclusions like it's we're making it to be not that important. Well, I can do it and still go to heaven. That's not the case for believers uh, when it comes to believers who take the stance on once saved, always saved, like I do. I, I, I want to do everything I can to do what's right and to serve God and to make Him happy, not because I'm trying to keep and not lose my salvation, but because I genuinely love Him with all of my heart, and I'm not saying that you don't. What I'm saying is I'm, we're serving for two different purposes when it comes to a hard attitude. I'm not doing it to keep my salvation. I'm not, I, when I sin, I don't sin and, and laugh in God's face and say, you know what, well, you already paid for that. Like it's it's commonly portrayed, and 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 I think 
it's what seems incoherent to me, and I'm not trying to be rude, I'm just trying to say the way that I see it, it seems incoherent to me to say, like, you, 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 you just said you still sin, God doesn't want us to do these things, but we can't draw a line and say, at this point, God would, would cut us off, or we would cut ourselves off from the faith and lose your salvation. Ne you can never be brought back to salvation, brought back to repentance after you do this one thing. Unless no, it's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So that's that's the one thing that I heard is that's the only yeah. thing that you can do to lose your salvation is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Is that what you're saying? Apostasy, which is blaspheming the Spirit. Okay. So your position is a, a little bit more unique um, than the, the typical, the, the, a more standard answer that, yeah, it's your works alone that's contributing. You're simply saying the only thing that can remove you from the faith is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, because the, because the scripture says that they won't be forgiven. Okay, now I understand your position a little bit better. So, um, let's go. I want you. And, and apostasy is that. I see. I see. So when when an apostate falls from the faith, see, uh, can I make one more statement before we go to the other yeah. day? Go ahead. Sorry about that. No, you're good. Um, when when we um, when we talk to a Muslim. And a Muslim leaves Islam, and they come to Christianity. What did what did that person do? They apostatized from Islam. We have no problem saying that apostasy is a real thing because we accept those who apostatize from all other religions to us. It just seems like we have an issue with saying that apostasy can happen on our side. Which and that's that that. And I'm, I'm not saying that, that you're saying that because ultimately, even if one apostatizes in your position, it don't matter. Um, but apostasy is a real thing. And and I think for the traditional eternal security, anything other than like a free grace idea, um, it becomes incoherent. It, it becomes illogical because really that position can't exist. That sin cannot exist in, in most eternal security positions. I see. Um, and yeah, I would still I, I would still hold the same position that I do, and I think that we'll see it a little more consistent when we get into Romans chapter 8. I let off on Hebrews 6, so uh, if you want, you can take uh, hit lead off on Romans 8. Okay. Uh, we were looking at verse 1 first, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I think, I think verse 1 will clear up um, my position, and, and it'll make it a little bit more... Uh, little bit more clear on what we're what we're talking about um, because it's it's really what everything that we've been discussing is geared around Romans 8 1 um, there's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit for the law of the spirit is life in Christ Jesus hath made us free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh God sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit so <clears throat> my hope you may already be able to see where I'm going to go with this but this is what it's built on a Christian, these are Christians that he's talking to. Paul's talking to believers. He's talking to the church at Rome. Um, 
to to meet this no condemnation scenario, we have to walk after the Spirit. Typically, when people will preach this sermon, they'll end it. There's therefore now no condemnation which you're in Christ Jesus. And they'll, they'll preach a 45-minute sermon on that part of the verse right there and not introduce those who walk after the flesh but after the Spirit. And if you do that, you disconnect them and it makes no sense. So what we have is Christians who choose to walk after the flesh do face the condemnation scenario. Only those who walk after the spirit face the, the no condemnation scenario. And I believe wholeheartedly if you're walking after the spirit, it's impossible for you to sin. The problem is the spirit is subject to us. We can quench the spirit. We can grieve the spirit. We can override the spirit by our own evil desires. And eventually that'll bring forth death, which I don't believe is physical death. I believe it's spiritual death. So this, this verse, Romans 8, 1, is based on um, the, the fact that to meet, it, it's a conditional statement. To meet the no, condi- no condemnation scenario, we have to walk after the Spirit. So if you don't walk after the Spirit and, and after the flesh, you're going to have condemnation. Now, I'll connect this back with uh, Corinthians to show that these um, these Christians, uh, I guess there's some debate on whether there's a carnal Christian or not, and I think Corinthians proves that there is a carnal Christian. Um, I'm going to just read a little bit more here because this comes from a, a an article I had written a long time ago discussing this with somebody else, but I'm just going to read some of it real quick, if if that's okay. Yeah, you got it, man. Okay. When we first look at this verse on the surface, we can conclude that the definite statement, this is a definite statement of eternal security. Most, Most of the time, one might have the tendency to try to put a period or exclamation point at the end of the first comma, but it disconnects the second part. When you read its entirety, this is what you see. I've already explained most of this. Um, Notice that it doesn't say that it's impossible to walk according to the flesh, or that if you do walk according to the flesh, then you are never saved to begin with. When you look at this verse deeper, you'll start to see there's a definite promise, but it's conditional. We have to decide how we're going to walk. We can see that both can be in Christ, but only one will have the no condemnation scenario. This is the one who walks according to the Spirit. So in 1 Corinthians 1, 3, it refers to those in Corinth as babes in Christ. Even though they were living carnally, they were still babes in Christ. Sometimes a statement is made to say that not all in the Corinthian church would say, but I think this teaches us that, that there is a such thing as a carnal Christian. Why would Paul refer to them as babes in Christ if they were just unbelievers? It, it makes no sense for Paul to refer to them uh, in this manner. The, the reason they were still babes in Christ because they had not grown and developed their faith and they were they were still 
getting hung up on the carnal things, the, the envy and jealousy and strife and, and those things that were that were going on in the Corinthian church. And and Paul goes to great lengths to rebuke them for this um, because I believe that he knew what was at stake. Um, he goes on, you know, you get down into chapter 5 where he says that we shouldn't even eat with a brother or sister that, that does these things. We're not even to sit down and break bread with them. And we're to expel the immoral people out from among us, hopefully to provoke a repentance and, and a restoration. And I, that's what I believe it to be. And for what reason? What's the end goal is for that person to repent and confess and be restored. I, I think Paul knew exactly what was at stake. Um, and I think it was eternity was at stake. Not to say that they were never saved, not that they were never trusting in Christ. This this baby in Christ statement phrase makes it clear that one can be in Christ and yet carnal. Uh, I, and Josh, I know you won't disagree with this based on what you've said, but the I think you have a, a, a slightly nuanced position uh, that's kind of out of the mainstream. Uh, let's just say not mainstream, but you're 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 definitely on the on the far end of the spectrum. Um, the big chunk of people in the middle, I, I think, have a problem with this carnal Christian idea um, that it's whether it's a reality or or they're just uh, professing and not possessing. I hear that a lot. Pretending Christians, um, I, I don't necessarily buy into any of that. Any of those statements, I I believe that <clears throat> Paul would have known. Uh, one through and by the spirit, he would have been able, I mean, this man performed miracles, but you're, you know, we want to take the position that he didn't have a clue who he was talking to, whether they were saved or not, whether they were true in the faith or not. Um, <clears throat> you see the same scenario echoed in the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Repent, overcome. So, and it lays out Okay, if you repent, it, you know, repent, I have this against you. Overcome, and you'll get this. One of them is overcome, and, and you won't be blotted out from the book of life. So what happens if you don't, if you don't repent and you don't overcome? Is not the logical conclusion that you will be blotted out of the book of life? I mean, the, the converse statement is important for everybody to understand. If I say if I say the the grass is green, and it's a true statement, then the converse of that is also a true statement. The grass is not red. That is a true statement as well. So when you look at these verses, it's the same thing. When you look at a verse that says, "There's therefore no condemnation which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit." The logical question to ask is, what happens to those who do walk after the flesh? You have to assume that they will face condemnation. Otherwise, the, the point of the verse is illogical. Why, why make the distinction between the flesh and the spirit if both those in Christ Jesus who are carnal and, and those who are spiritual both face the no condemnation scenario? It makes no sense. 
Um, okay, so I think those are really good points. I think my job is basically going to have to establish what this condemnation is, and uh, that'll make my position a little bit more clear. It says, therefore, uh, there's no uh, now no condemnation to those to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the, the Spirit. I've got to say this to those of you who listen to my podcast who have heard some of the, the examples that I've used when we're talking about textual criticism and textual variance. Uh, the, what we call the modern critical text, I've got to point this out, um, the modern critical text takes out that phrase uh, to them who are in Christ Jesus. And if you take out that phrase there, I, I can absolutely 100% see why you would believe and take the position that you do, Sean, uh, simply because if you take out that phrase, in Christ Jesus, it absolutely 100% changes the entire context for, for uh, uh, what this condemnation is. I think that um, the condemnation is is defined in chapter six, okay, and that's uh, when we're talking about the. Can I can I correct you one minute, Josh? Well, just give me. Let me. Uh, yeah, let me do. I, let me do. You made this. you made it. You've made an error though, and 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 you're building something that's on something that's not not correct. The part that's taken out is the second half. Those in Christ Jesus are are in there. Therefore, there's no, now no condemnation for those in, who are in Christ Jesus. The, the the second part of that verse is what what you're going what you're wanting to address. Right, right. Okay. So, with that said, let me get this back. But you're saying that that they it, it's taken out those in Christ Jesus when it's not. That's a, that's not my only point. Well, this the whole second half of that is taken out. Right, but, and, but I, what what you said was what. What's taken out is those are in Christ Jesus, which is not. If you want to say the second half of that verse is, is taken out, I'm, I'm okay with that. But what you, the statement you made was the part that was taken out are those who are in Christ Jesus. So, but I'm, what I'm saying is it's laying the groundwork for those who. Yeah, maybe I did misspeak on that. Um, it's laying the groundwork that Sorry, once you're it. in Christ. It, that defines what it means to walk either in the spirit or, or, or after the flesh. So that's, maybe I did misspeak there. If I did, good catch, and, and I do appreciate you for calling me out on that. So, um, but, but let's look and define what this condemnation is. I, I think right off the bat we see that this therefore introduces a conclusion that was based off of uh, something that Paul had written prior to this. And if I'm going to be exact in, in where it is that I'm, I'm, I'm referencing, it's everything from chapter 3 on. It's not just chapter 7, but specifically in chapter 7, verse 6, it says, But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So we, we've got a, a definition there of what this condemnation has delivered us from. It doesn't say that we absolutely will serve in the newness of the Spirit. It says that we should. So obviously what we're getting to is, is a, uh, um, a definitive um, portion of Scripture that tells us, like, here's what this condemnation is, here's what you've been delivered from, here's what you've been delivered to, and it's all conditional on those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we see in chapter 8 uh, is that now you've got, a bunch of different laws that are warring against each other, which Paul, Paul just concluded at the end of chapter 7 where he says this, uh, Now, if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. 
I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So that's a definition for you of what the flesh is versus what the spirit is. And then he goes on to say, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of this death? And then he tells you, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself may serve the law of God, but with the law, uh, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So essentially, you've got the law of God versus the law of sin. The one is spiritual, serving the, the, the spirit, and the other is uh, sinful, which is the flesh. So essentially, what Paul is laying out in chapter 8 is, here's what you've been saved from, which I'm going to lay out between chapters 3 and chapter 7. Here's what the war is going to look like between your flesh and the spirit. And now in chapter 8, I'm going to define for you and show you exactly what this war is going to be between the flesh and the spirit. Uh, whichever you serve the most is going to be the one that rules you and owns you. It does not, however, mean that if you serve the flesh more than the spirit, that someday uh, the condemnation which is was once held before you were born again is now going to be held to you again after you've been saved. So let me sum it up this way. A Christian must believe that he or she has a permanent acceptance with God before that one will grow much in grace and godliness. Um, chapter 3, verse 20 shows us that uh, the therefore of condemnation of, of chapter 8, verse 1 gives us the therefore of no more condemnation, which we just read. In chapter 3, verse 20, it says, it says this. It says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the Spirit and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ, to all and upon all that believe in him, for there is no difference. So, again, Paul is drawing a contrast of eternal condemnation versus condemnation of the flesh. So, you've got... Uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says no condemnation is different from freedom from judgment. Um, that is a penal servitude. It means that God will never condemn us to an eternity separate from himself for our sins. This is where another thing where we look at the seven judgments of the Bible. A Christian is still going to be judged um, for three out of those seven things. One, you're now no longer judged as a sinner because that was taken care of at the cross once you chose to believe in Jesus Christ as your personal savior, you're now judged as a son on this earth um, as you walk either according to the flesh or according to the spirit, which Paul is laying out in Romans chapter eight. Uh, and at the end of the day, one day you'll be judged as a servant at the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ, uh, where your work will be tried by fire, whether it was good or bad, whether it was gold, silver, precious stones, or whether it was wood, hay, and stubble, and at the end of the day, the condemnation that we hold in this life or in the next is never going to be our eternal condemnation because that was placed on the Lord Jesus Christ, which has been the substitute for us. You'll no longer experience condemnation because, he, uh, as those, because Christ represents that condemnation for us. There's, the, note that there is an absolute force of this great promise of eternal security. That's the whole question of what this debate is about, is are you eternally secure? I say that you are, and I'll sum it up this way. The law condemns, but the believer has a new relationship to that law, and therefore he cannot be condemned. In John chapter 5, verse 24, again, we've got one more verse showing us uh, the condemnation here. 
this is Jesus Christ speaking. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that hears my words and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. Uh, that's the way that I would sum it up, guys, is, is uh, you're passed from death to life. I mean, th there's, there's no more condemnation in the words of Jesus Christ. I don't know how much stronger uh, we could put it. But, Sean, I'll turn it over to you. We can dialogue a little bit about that. Okay. I mean, um, I don't disagree with anything you said about Romans 3 through 7. Uh, um, I think the part that you're missing is, is Paul's laying out more of a testimony. Uh, to those who understood the, the works of the law and and he, he concludes it at the end of verse 7 as someone who, you know, um, given a testimony, who who's going to save me from this? Who's going to save me from this flesh and the law and death? Jesus Christ. He, he's making a, a testimony. He, he, he's preaching a sermon in those chapters and he, and he builds upon it and I agree wholeheartedly with you and then after that he does make the, the therefore but the, the con to say condemnation is not um, is not spiritual makes these verses incoherent I, I, I'm sorry to, to keep repeating that but we all are going to whether we're righteous or unrighteous I mean it's not based holy holy living people don't live longer righteous living people don't live longer now if if they did I would say hey you, you've got a case here if all the evil people died early and all the righteous people lived until till 80 and then all the the middle-of-the-road Christians like me I guess who sin sometimes uh, you know, we, we died at 30, then I would say, yeah, you guys got a system worked out here. But to say this condemnation is only talking about the physical side of things, we don't find it playing out in re real life. We don't put, find it playing out in reality. I mean, you've got people who are vile and evil that live to be 80, 90 years old. Some of these televangelists, I mean, some of them live long, prosperous lives at the expense of, of God's word, and, and he's not striking them down dead. Their condemnation is not being brought forth on them. Um, I do want to, you, you, you made a specific point about saying the word should um, in, in chapter 7. In that first, first passage of scripture you quoted, and I can't remember exactly what verse it was, if you can remind me. Yeah, it is... Uh, what is it? Seven, six. Yeah, seven, six. That we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Okay, should is the past tense of shall. So, in the old way, see, when it's talking about things in the past, you use the word should. When you're talking about things of the present tense, it's shall. And if you doubt it, you can look it up and, and you'll clearly see that when people make this should and shall distinction, I, I think they're, they're not understanding the, the English parsing of the words. Um, so should carries the same weight as shall. It's just talking about something written ago. Um, 
God so loved the world. See, there's a big there's a big gripe about that between the NIV and the King James. One uses should and one uses shall. They're both they're both the same. It's just it's just a parsing of the tense. Okay, um, so I'm going to give one response and rebuttal to uh, the response that you gave to mine, and then I think that we can we're at an hour and forty minutes right now. We can do our closing statements and go from there. I think sure. that'd be a good a good good place to stop here. We didn't get as far as we thought we would. would I know we? <laughs> we didn't, man. It, but it's been good. It's been fun. And yeah, I'm enjoying it. it. I, I enjoy it. All right. So here's what I would say um, in in response to um, the position that Sean has taken here between the uh, the flesh and the spirit. I, I, I think it's inconsistent to say, yeah, I do sin, uh, but the only sin that I, I could sin uh, that would send me to hell would be the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And then to take the same position in, in chapter 8 of Romans that um, that you do sin in your life, but, but the reference to the condemnation here is not a temporal condemnation, that it's an eternal condemnation. I just don't see how you can draw the conclusion that Romans chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 6 are... are um, are, are both speaking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Maybe once I get finished, we can talk about that and then and then give closing statements. But, but what I would say is this. I'm taking the position that one is, is temporal in this life versus eternal. There are absolutely two distinctions that have to be made here. The reason why I do that is because the, Rome, the condemnation of Romans 8.1 is absolutely not the same as the condemnation in John chapter 5, verse 24. Remember in John 5.24, that was Jesus Christ speaking and said that uh, to those who believe on the one who sent me, they have everlasting life and will not come into condemnation, but you've passed from death to life. And um, here we see that there is condemnation for those who live after the flesh. All right. So Jesus Christ paid for uh, the eternal condemnation um, while for while we are in eternity. The condemnation that would be in the flesh would be the contrast to that where he says in verse 13, if you live after the flesh, you will die. Now, is that talking about the body or is that talking about the eternal soul? I think it's talking about the body. Why do I think that? Well, in, in verse 6, it says, for to be carnally minded is death. So can a Christian be carnal? Absolutely a Christian can be carnal. We see that in 1 Corinthians 3.1. We see it in 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, where he says, and I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal even as unto a babe in Christ, for you are yet carnal. So a Christian who doesn't live right can be condemned to physical death by God for the way he lives without going to hell. Now, it's in that passage. We just talked about it. It's in this passage. We're talking about it now. Condemnation is another form for the word damnation. That does not mean that every time the word damnation shows up in the Bible, that it is an eternal damnation of either the soul or the spirit. It can be a, a reference to the physical body, just like we're talking about condemnation of the physical body here. The reason we see that is in Mark 16, 16, you see damned is used as damned to hell. That would be eternal. But look at Romans chapter 14, verse 23. It says, He that doubts is damned if he eats, because he eats not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Now, does a Christian lose his salvation simply because he doubts about whether or not what he's eating is right or not? Of course not. Here's what a Christian can do while you're in the flesh. You can stumble in your faith. That's going to happen more than likely. 1 Corinthians 8, 9. You can defile your conscience. 1 Corinthians 8, 7. But it's st you're still a brother in Christ. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 11 through 12. 
The damnation of Romans chapter 14 verse 23 has nothing to do with hell, and the condemnation of Romans chapter 8 verse 1 has nothing to do with hell. It has to do with the battle that you're going to face in this life, in this body, in this temple, between the spirit and the flesh. And the condemnation that you are going to receive because of that is not going to be the eternal condemnation that's referenced um, for your soul. It's going to be the one that's referenced for your body. So that's how I would respond to that. Um, I'll give you one chance to respond. I won't respond back to that, but I, then okay. we can go to closing statements. Um, I, it, it still goes back to Jesus. It, you quote Jesus's words to say there's no no way we can face condemnation, but then he also says, he who endures to the end, the same shall be saved. So as I prefaced through this whole conversation, believing, enduring, the continual aspect of that with the continual aspect of understanding confession and repentance when we do sin. Now, uh, maybe I've not explained Romans eight is talking about anything. I'm not, I'm not just saying apostasy. Romans six is apostasy. Romans eight can be anything. If, if left unchecked, uncorrected, unrepented, unconfessed, you live in that state after the flesh, you will die. That's not talking about physical death. It's talking about spiritual death. Because the babes in Christ weren't struck down dead because they were carnal. That God is long-suffering, not wanting any of us to perish, but all to come to repentance. This is why he presents this. There's a chance for those babes in Christ to confess their sins and be cleansed from their sins and be restored. This is patience, long-suffering not wanting none to perish and that's the that's the love of god he, he gives us opportunity after opportunity now concerning the um reference to uh eating damnation on themselves um i think if it gets to the point th things spiral out of control it starts small and then before you know it you've got a brush fire and and things can get out of hand and the, the plan is that it we keep these things in check somebody whose faith is weak my challenge to them is to add to your faith grow your faith grow to a mature faith you won't be tempted by these things you know too many of us stay in this uh, low-level infant uh, needing milk and we never grow to the fullness of, of what God has in store for us. And, and I don't believe that people will be tempted. There's freedom in, in the growth. And I don't, think, I don't think enough Christians get to that point in the faith, and they struggle. So, um, once again, Sean, I really appreciate you coming on. I think at this point we're going to go to our closing statements. Okay. And I'll put a timer up on the board for those of you who are still watching. Uh, we will uh, just make it five minutes. We can sum up what our position is. Obviously, the whole point of this debate was to either establish or um, reject and draw a, an, an ample conclusion that, hey, this guy's given a, a good position um, that supports the, the eternal security of the believer, or this guy is given a really good um, explanation for why his position shows that, yeah, you absolutely don't have eternal security as a believer. So. Uh, with that said, guys, I'm going to turn over to Sean. Let me put five minutes on the board. and uh, I probably won't need that much. It's just a short statement. That'll work.
you got it, man. Take it whenever you're ready. All right. Uh, first, I want to thank Josh for having me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and, and dialogue with him. Um, it's for me, it's been fruitful. I, I, hopefully, it's been fruitful to others. Um, but uh, you know, in closing, I, I want to say that there is eternal security found within the scriptures. Unfortunately, it's not the eternal security we're, we're discussing. Uh, in the scriptures of Second Peter chapter 1, we find a whole uh, 14, 15 verses that lays out exactly how to never fall and receive a rich reward into the kingdom of heaven. Um, verse 10, I'll only read verse 10. There, wherefore, the rather, brethren, give all diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For the obvious question we're, we're going to ask based on that, what things do we have to do in order to never fall? By giving all effort and making your calling and election sure. The, the, the verses are self-explanatory. Um, and I hope I've conveyed that message uh, this evening. How do we do that? How do we make our calling and election sure? By adding to our faith the fruits of the Spirit, which is found among the mature who are making their faith complete. And that's, that's the summation. Anybody wants to know exactly what biblical eternal security looks like, read Second Peter chapter 1 and start from there. And then, and then Second Peter, at the end of Second Peter, um, it talks about being, you know, uh, becoming blind and falling from your steadfast position. Um, it's throughout the past. It's, it's throughout the scripture. Uh, for every one verse, I believe you could point to that establishes eternal security. I could probably point to two that doesn't that says otherwise, makes it conditional, makes it um, if then scenarios. That, that would lead you to question that it's future. It's something we continue to work out. It's uh, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Salvation is a process and it's a race. And we have to continue that race like Paul did, steadfast to the end. But uh, I think that's it. I, I thank you, Josh, again for having me. Uh, hopefully we can do this again. Sweet. Absolutely, man. It's been it really has been good. It's been fun. I've enjoyed it. Thanks again for coming on. Uh, let me give my five-minute closing statement here. I'll keep it short and sweet for those of you who are still watching. And then I want to give you a, a few announcements for where we're going next week and what we're what we're kind of doing uh, with the program from here. So um, here's what I would say, guys. We've talked about Hebrews chapter 6. We've talked about the overarching theme of eternal security. Uh, and then really we, we focused at the end there on Romans chapter 8. So um, I, I think that when we, when we look at the overall concept of what eternal security is, uh, just, just the words themselves and the meanings of the words eternal security, uh, I, I think that it's, it's, it's <laughs> what's the word I'm looking for? It's an oxymoron to say, yeah, you have eternal security, but you can lose it. Uh, you, you know, I, and I think it's, I think it's a, it's, it's, confusing and conflicting to say, I don't do anything to contribute to my salvation, but I do contribute to keep my salvation. 
at the end of the day, guys, I think that uh, if there's one thing that I could point across to those of you who are viewing tonight, uh, or this afternoon rather, is that the eternal security of the believer is sure. It's not temporary. It's not based off of anything that you do or you don't do. It, it, it's based off of what Christ has done for you. Um, again, I, I, I pointed out in the very beginning that uh, the doctrine of eternal security is a subcategory of the doctrine of justification, which is a subcategory of the doctrine of salvation. So when we look at the salvation of the, the believer, you have to either say that overarching theme of salvation is either temporary or it's eternal. And then underneath that, you have to say your justification is either temporary or it is eternal. And then underneath that, your eternal security is either temporary or it's eternal. So when I'm looking at eternal security in itself, I'm looking at the overarching theme of what salvation is. Is salvation eternal or is it is it is it uh, temporary? And what is the basis for that? For me personally, I'm telling you guys that you cannot lose your salvation for one simple fact. You didn't do anything to earn it. It's all about what Jesus Christ has done for you. And when we looked at those passages in Hebrews chapter 6 and Romans chapter 8, uh, we saw that in Hebrews 6, it's a reference to your rewards and your inheritance, not a reference to your salvation. We also looked in Romans 8 and saw that it's a reference to your physical body and not to your eternal uh, state of your spirit and your soul. So the damnation and, and the, um, the condemnation and the loss of rewards or the falling away or all, all of these terms that you see in the Bible that may off the, off the cuff say, you know what, well, maybe that is saying you can lose your salvation is not teaching that you can lose your salvation. It's teaching uh, that you can lose your rewards or your inheritance. Your, your salvation is as sure today as it was the day that you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, I, I think that it will be throughout eternity. Um, I will, um, I don't know. Let me see what comments we've got in here. If, if you guys have any, any comments on whatever platform that you're watching from, um, you can type them into your into your um, search bar, whether it's YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Periscope, whatever it may be. And uh, I should be able to see it. One person put in here Romans chapter 8, verses 8 through 39. Um, I think it's 38 through 39. He says, For I'm persuaded that neither, neither uh, death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I would agree with that. I think that um, I think that is one of the one of the greatest verses to to show you that eternal security is is eternally secure. I would also say that in John chapter six, when we saw that um, when we saw that um, no one can pluck you out of the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, that literally means no one. Sean told us that well, no one can except for you yourself. I think that's inconsistent. I, I think that there's nothing that you you actually did to contribute to put yourself into the hand of Christ and therefore there's nothing that you can do to take yourself out of the hand of Christ um, that's going to wrap it up for me but uh, let me go to my closing scene here I lost Sean I don't know what the deal is on the video there but um, I'm gonna we're wrapping it up anyway so I'm gonna go to the closing scene and then I'll call you back Sean if you're still there but yeah, let's see if I can pull that up there. We got it. 
guys it's been fun um next week we are going to be doing a debate with an atheist from uh, uh that i met on facebook he's actually uh he's got he's got a few different websites one of them is called lying christianity uh we're going to be discussing his story how he actually did defect from the faith and uh kind of what we're talking about tonight defecting from the faith apostasy was he ever really saved i think that's something that you might find interesting to hear a dialogue about that uh, but then to uh, kind of transition from his story in Christianity and leaving the faith to uh, the cosmological argument. So this is going to be moved more into a philosophical argument of whether or not you can find God in nature and the cosmos. And uh, if you can, where do you go from there? So uh, we are, I want to mention, we are now listener supported. You can go to my Facebook, or my Twitter, or uh, my YouTube, uh, or even anchor.fm and you can contribute to help us keep making this podcast happen. Um, whether it's monthly, you want to give a monthly gift, or you want to do a one-time gift, you can do whatever you want. You don't have to, but obviously it's going to help us be able to crank out more videos and, and make it efficient and look a little more professional. So once again, guys, God bless. I hope that it's been good for you to consider uh, eternal security and uh, what that means in your own daily personal walk. For me personally, God hasn't given us the spirit of fear, and I don't fear losing my salvation because I didn't do anything during it. I love you, and we'll talk to you later.